What does a rape victim have to say about the pro-life movement? It's time for The Line of Fire with your host, activist, author, international speaker, and theologian, Dr. Michael Brown. Your voice of moral, cultural, and spiritual revolution. Michael Brown is the director of the Coalition of Conscience and president of Fire School of Ministry. Get into The Line of Fire now by calling 866-34-TRUTH. That's 866-34-TRUTH. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. We are going to cover a lot of important ground today, from atheism to the failed Trump prophecies to abortion, pro-life movement. May get to some of your calls as well, 866-34-TRUTH, 866-348-7884. I was sent this clip via Twitter yesterday. I looked at it, and it was, it was sad to see. A few days ago, Larry King passed away in his late 80s. So famous talk show host, famous on CNN for the many interviews he conducted. Something like 50,000 interviews over the course of his life. We talked to many religious people, Billy Graham to probably the Dalai Lama, you name it. And would always ask probing faith-related questions, but in kind of a down-to-earth way that others could relate to. But he was not a believer. He was married... (laughs) multiple times, uh, eight times, I believe, to seven different wives. During this interview, he references his wife at that time being a true believer. But this is from a few years back. Larry King is explaining why he does not believe in God. Now, of course, at this point, he knows reality having passed from this world, and God only knows what happened in the days hours leading up to his passing from this world. You you hope for the best until you find out otherwise. But this is where he stood as he's being interviewed by a young man. This is a few years back. And I want to dig into what he's saying because he's not the only one to say these things and to feel these things. And the fact that he's not with us now makes it more poignant, a, a sense of greater urgency to reach others who may be thinking in similar terms. So the, the first clip's a little bit longer. Uh, listen to the interaction. Money Mandahar on Instagram. It's no secret you're fascinated with the afterlife. What are your beliefs on the afterlife, and what do you think happens when someone passes away? The trouble is, I think nothing happens. I, uh, I have no, I don't believe in organized religion or religion. I, I, I can't make that leap of faith. Uh, I've never seen anyone return. I've never gotten a message when I had heart surgery I didn't see clouds or white bright lights i i know that people say they've seen it and i respect that and i hope they're right so i can hope hope is different from belief sure my wife is a true believer she'll say things like you know her uncle died i'll see him on the other side and whenever i ask where is the other side and what form of them when you see them in what does the spirit look like i think it's all so my theory is this okay Man uh, came from the monkeys and gorillas. I think that's obvious. All you got to do is look at gorillas and monkeys. We evolved and walked on two feet. And then man was walking around with women. And one day, he fell down. And they looked at him, and he didn't get up. He wasn't sleeping. He didn't get up. And they didn't get up. And then he started to smell bad, you know. So they put him in the ground. You know, what else? Where are you going to put him? Put him in the ground. And then someone had to say... Some smart guy had to say, this is it. 
I think it's all religion is based on death. If you didn't die, there'd be no religion. Wow. So what it does is, is encourage the masses. <laughs> Karl Marx called it the opiate of the masses, which I believe it is. I don't, dis I don't think my wife is nuts. I don't think my father-in-law is nuts. I think they all firmly believe, but I think it's superstition based on this desire to want to know you're going somewhere. It makes you feel good. Yeah. And you can't be proven wrong. True. Because if you're dead and you go somewhere, you were right. If you don't go somewhere, you don't know it. And nobody knows. It's a win-win. That's true. I can't make the leap. <laughs> That's a long answer, but I can't make the leap. Yeah, obviously, it's, it's very sad when you watch this, especially because we can't pray for Larry King now. We can't reach out to him yet again. He's gone from this world, and, and what is, is. That's the reality. It's interesting that he hoped for life beyond the grave, hoped it would be true, perhaps hadn't processed the thought that there might be accountability to a God, not just blissful passing on into another world, but accountability to a God and a judgment at that point for good or for evil. But his idea, forget the evolutionary part, his idea that religion, belief in God, all has to do with the issue of death. Obviously, the issue of death is very, very major, and, and you have certain, say, religions in Asia or Africa, and, and they venerate the dead, and they offer sacrifices to the dead, and they think the spirits of the dead are with them. Obviously, these are questions people deal with, and is this life all there is? But the reality is, when you know the Lord, it's about every day. It's, it's, it's about your ongoing relationship with Him. In other words, every day of breathing for me is not breathing because I'm going to die one day. It's because I'm alive. And, and every day, spending time with my wife, Nancy, it, it's not a matter of, well, get time in because we're going to die. No, it's we're married. This is, this is our life. My, my point is to just think that someone came up with the idea of a God or religious faith or an afterlife because the only real issue is death is to miss the whole part of life with God and purpose in God and destiny in God and being in right relationship with God. And it's not a matter of in the complete fleshly, carnal way, let us eat and drink and be merry for tomorrow we die. You know, just get everything you can, indulge the flesh because tomorrow you're out of here. No, there's a purpose to our living, there, that we're, we're created in God's image and we're made for fellowship and we're made for intimacy, not just with each other, but with God. And when he comes in your life, all the other stuff that seems so important and big and major, that goes out the window, and now you have a whole new purpose. And to think, wow, he never knew that. Again, God only knows what happened in the last moments of his life or days or weeks or months. I, don't, I hadn't followed his, his life before that. And, and certainly many people must have prayed for him watching some of his interviews and things like that. But it's so much more than the issue of death and what happens after. It's, it's this life. It's life with God. I remember seeing an interview with Groucho Marx, famous member of the Marx Brothers, and they asked him, Groucho, do you believe in life after death? He said, I'm not so sure I believe in life before death. Obviously, typical Groucho Marx cynicism, but life before death. This, this is what prepares us for what happens afterwards, and this is what we have right now. This is our existence, and God wants to be involved in our lives now, and the God who put us here will call us to account for our lives here. Now, the fact is, if you're an atheist, if you're an agnostic, and you've tried and you've looked, and you just say, hey, I can't make that leap, I'm not condemning you. 
I'm not saying, where is your faith? What's the matter with you? How dare you? But my prayer is when God does pull you and work in your heart that you don't resist. Don't you don't harden your heart. All right, the interview continues. Here's what comes next. What made you actually lose your faith? Uh, the good, very good question. I lost my faith by not getting answers to questions. I, uh, uh, every religious leader has never answered questions like, okay, man has free will, right? What did that have to do with Katrina? If God is omnipotent, could he have prevented the monsoon? So I lost my faith uh, right at the bottom of my, my, my bar mitzvah. I started asking rabbis questions because they encouraged me to ask questions. Then I would ask questions of religion. I interviewed, except for the Pope, every major religious leader, head of the Russian Orthodox Church, head of the Mormon, Mormon Church, um, Catholic bishops, James Pike, the Episcopal bishop, and there's one that they never have an answer, and the same answer is, we don't question the ways of the Lord, or the Lord has a plan. Do you believe that some mystical figure up there has a plan for you, and the plan might be to blow you away in a hurricane? Right, so first thing is, I'm glad that rabbis encouraged him to ask questions. He felt he didn't get answers. What troubles me is, I'm sure, there were people that he spoke to, from rabbis to Christian religious leaders to others, that had answers to his questions beyond, well, you can't question the will of God or the ways of God. I mean, in point of fact, if the world is under a curse from God because of human sin, in other words, we've made our bed and we're sleeping in it, and just like God does not stop, stop us from acting on our wills, so someone is angry and goes to get into a fight with someone and God doesn't stop it and may end up killing that person. God does not stop and intervene every moment in history. The same way there are consequences to our sins and actions and, and that's created a fallen world as well. But, but, but what if God can bring good out of suffering? What if God can bring life out of death? And what if this world is not the end of the story and, and that there can be things set right in the world to come? In other words, there are so many potential answers that can be given that somehow didn't get to the depth of his heart. I have a new book coming out called Has God Failed You? And one of the chapters is called Permission to Doubt, saying it's fine to have your questions, but there are valid answers. Perhaps God knows the issue is not so much the answers, but the humility to receive them. God only knows. One more clip from the interview. And then the Lord of the first of, of the Old Testament, I didn't like him at all. Okay. So if I'm supposed to love this God, I instead was taught to fear him. You'd be good or. Yeah, now again, it sounds overly simplistic, but that's very real to people. And if you read the Old Testament, maybe the first time through, you might think, wow, this God's angry or spiteful or mean or this or that, He's crushing everybody. Fear me, I'm speaking on Mount Sinai, fear me or die. But obviously you have to keep reading and then seeing the compassion and goodness and mercy and long suffering and patience of the same God. And then the full expression of the same God sending his own son into the world to die for us. If he's just this cruel despot, just destroy us all. No, he enters into our world and enters into our suffering and takes it on himself 
because that's how deeply God loves us and cares for us. And when we see him rightly, all we could do is just love back. Once we ask him to forgive us for our own guilt and sin and rebellion and pride. Bottom line, though, is we've got to have solid answers. We also have to pray that the Holy Spirit would open hearts and minds. Because outside of that, our answers will only go so far. But let this Larry King video remind us it's important to have an environment where people can ask questions. It's important that we have solid answers for them. And then it's important that we pray that they encounter God for themselves. As someone once said, a man with an experience is never at the mercy of a man with an argument. All right, we'll be right back. The Line of Fire with your host, Dr. Michael Brown, your voice of moral, cultural, and spiritual revolution. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Thanks, friends, for joining us on The Line of Fire, 866-34-TRUTH. I received an email this morning from a well-placed international Christian leader, and he works a lot in the Far East, and he said, we are dealing with the failed Trump prophecies in Asia, we are dealing with issues in Australia. This is not something we just sweep under the rug. We're not out on a witch hunt. We're not out to condemn. But these questions are coming up left and right. People are doing their best to sort them out. We're doing our best to help sort things out. One of the big issues to me is prophetic accountability. Honesty, integrity, recognizing error. New Testament model, 1 Thessalonians 5, don't despise prophecy, right? Don't throw it out. Don't despise prophecy. Rather, test all things. Hold fast to that which is good. Don't put out the Spirit's fire. Don't quench the Spirit. Don't despise prophecies. But don't just believe everything. Test every, we're called to test everything. First Corinthians, excuse me, First John 4. Don't believe every spirit. Test the Spirit. First Thessalonians 5. Test everything. Hold fast to that which is good. doesn't say stone and destroy the bad, but... Hold fast to that, which is good. 1 Corinthians 14, two or three prophets speak. The others weigh carefully what is being said. That's the New Testament pattern. All right, let's take a look at this explanation of Mario Murillo as to why so many prophets prophesied Trump's reelection and it did not happen. Were they false prophecies? Were they failed prophecies? Let's take a look at what he has to say. And I'm pleased to know that He's been spending his time more and more out on the streets evangelizing, preaching the gospel to the lost. And as the elections got closer, he was doing more and more of that. Glad to see him doing that. Let's analyze what he had to say here. He said, what really happened between the prophets and the election? He says this, I've waited until now in order to answer this question, having now gained a better perspective. My delay is modeled after the verses that followed. They took place as Job sat with his friends who were trying to help him make sense of the horrific ordeal that had befallen him. Being younger than the three friends of Job, Elihu listened and stayed quiet as long as he could. Then he finally spoke. And he quotes from Job 32 and saying, hey, I wanted to wait and process things. Great. That's always wise when we do that. He says, if you've been following my blogs recently, you will remember that I did not prophesy a Trump victory. 
but I supported the true prophets who did. So he said, hey, God didn't speak to me about this, but I do believe he spoke to these prophets. So how can we reconcile what has happened to the predictions of the true prophets? He said, I was surprised that no one I know of saw the obvious answer to what has happened with these prophecies. The truth has always been in plain sight in the Bible, so I'll now speak knowing I'm risking wrath from both those who support the prophets and those who reject them. Now, there's not going to be any wrath from me towards Mario, but we'll analyze what he says and see if it holds water scripturally, all right? Again, people follow these things, read these things, so we're going to comment and interact. We read in 2 Kings 13 about a prophetic prediction. Jehoash, the king, faces the doom of the Syrians and beseeches the prophet Elisha for God's help. Elisha said to him, take bow and arrows. And he took bow and arrows, and he said to the king of Israel, put your hand upon the bow. Jehoash put his hand upon it, and Elisha put his hands upon the king's hands. And Elisha said, open the window to the east. And he opened it. Then Elisha said, shoot, and he shot. And Elisha said, the Lord's hour of victory, the hour of victory over Syria, for you shall smite the Syrians and Aphek until you have destroyed them. Then he said, take the arrows, and he took them, and he said to the king of Israel, strike on the ground, and he struck three times and stopped, and the man of God was angry with him and said, you should have struck five or six times, then you would have struck down Syria until you had destroyed it, but now you shall strike Syria down only three times. So Mary Murillo says, first Elisha prophesied the complete destruction of Syria at Aphek, saying, for you shall smite the Syrians at Aphek till you have destroyed them. But the king failed to seize the promise, and rather than striking repeatedly, Jehoash made a half-hearted effort the promise, though valid, was thwarted, and the prophet said, but now you shall strike Syria down only three times. Here's what Albert Barnes' commentary says. God had been willing to give the Israelites complete victory over Syria, but Jehoash, by his non-acceptance of the divine promise in its fullness, had checked the outflow of mercy, and the result was that the original promise could not be fulfilled. He said, that is a direct parallel with what happened in America. There were true prophets and false prophets, and while their messages about Trump seemed the same, there was a stark difference. The true prophets rightly coupled the promise of Trump's victory with a call for the church to repent, but the false prophets spoke as if he were, we were entitled to an automatic victory. Now, hang on there, because the vast majority of prophetic voices that I heard speaking, that I think Mario would put in the category of true prophets, were not calling for repentance. They were simply saying Trump would be reelected. I heard that over and over and over and over. And almost nowhere did I hear the condition that we must repent. And in fact, if you gave one of the true conditions, namely we must repent of looking to Trump in an idolatrous way, putting our trust in him as some type of political delivery, deliverer, putting all of our eggs in his basket as he's the one that can save America and preserve the free world. If you dared to raise that, as I often did over the four years of Trump's presidency as a Trump voter, you got slammed, you got attacked. And, and, and many of those following the prophets said, you're discouraging us. No, I was saying if you want him to be reelected, we, we better search our hearts and not look to him in a wrong way. So the very message that needed to be preached was hardly preached at all. And the message we heard over and over, it's going to happen, it's going to happen, it's going to happen, it's going to happen. For sure. He said, we also entered a but now moment just as the king did. Elisha said, but now you shall strike Syria down only three times. In the same way, now we got an election win, but not the victory to carry us over the finish line. Again, this to me is scriptural gibberish, to be honest. Okay. Number one, to say we got the victory is still an opinion. Everything official right up through our courts says it didn't happen and Biden is the president. But even if, even if 
there was electoral fraud, even if that was the case. And many fine people believe there was fraud. Many thinking people, non-conspiratorial people believe there was fraud. Let's just put that over here. The only issue with the prophecy was not theoretically who will win an election but never serve as president, but who the next president will be. Let's not go back and reinterpret it. The only issue, the only thing that was being talked about was who the next president will be. Not who will win an election but have it stolen and someone else will be president. No, who the next president will be. That was the only issue, the only concern, and that's what was being prophesied. And that's why they said he will have a second consecutive term. He will be president for eight years. It was emphatic, and it was reinforced over and over and over again. But not only so, in terms of prayer, there was more prayer leading up to this election and after than any election in my lifetime. And I'm going on 66 years old. So I've been around a little bit, okay? There was massive prayer. Oh, there was not massive repentance of putting too much trust in the election and too much trust too much trust in the political system and looking to a man too much, a very flawed man. There was an adequate repentance of that, but there was massive prayer for God's will to be done more than anything I've seen. So again, this is just breaking down on on every on every front. Just as the prophet ordered the king to take arrows and strike the ground, so God ordered the American church to rally around Trump. <laughs> the American church did rally around Trump. The American church rallied around Trump to the point it was idolatrous. The American church rallied around Trump as if he was the only man that could save America. The American church rallied around Trump to the point of overlooking the destructive things he was doing right up to throwing Mike Pence under the bus January 6th. You better believe the American church rallied around Trump like nothing we've ever seen. The fact that things did not come to pass, as these prophets said, is because they weren't speaking for God. They were not speaking accurately for whatever reason. The true remnant struck the ground, but many others did not. Some misguided voices diluted the church's ability to run with the prophetic promise. That's why I wrote weeks and weeks of events. Don't blame anybody else. Don't. It's going to happen or not. Woke voices such as Beth Moore and Jim Wallace notably made it their mission to insult and demean most Trump and his supporters. At no time did they offer any sort of meaningful alternative to God's provision for America. Even there, it's just a completely politically charged statement. I don't agree with the politics of, of, of Jim Wallace. From what I know about Beth Moore, there are things I wouldn't agree with. I do agree when she pointed out a cult-like devotion to Trump and a Trump idolatry or, or unhealthy Christian nationalism. I do agree that those were genuine concerns. Instead, no, they stopped it from happening. Let me say it again. The prophets over and over said it was going to happen. Even after November 3rd, they guaranteed it was going to happen. They gave dates. They gave specifics. Even after the election, so whatever, quote, arrows were being hit, whatever emphasis was being made, even after that, the very prophets that Mario's speaking of that were the so-called true prophets in this, they kept prophesying Trump's going to, you watch, in January 20th, you watch what's going to happen. The shift is going to happen. I had broadcasts sent to me, watch this, watch this. So this breaks down on every single angle. We struck the enemy three times. We actually didn't with the election. Trump won by a landslide. Again, his opinion. But we did not get the full victory that would have come if the fraud had been exposed and overturned. And amazingly, all the true prophets who prophesied the re-election somehow missed the steal of the election. And again, what is the use of an election that doesn't elect? What, what, what's the use of a promise that doesn't deliver? The only issue 
was not who is theoretically going to win an election. The only issue is who will be the next president. This needs to be owned. This needs to be embraced. This needs to be recognized. The, the more you read things like this, misinterpreting Scripture and misapplying Scripture, the, the less and less credibility is left for those that are saying, no, these are, these are good people who prophesied well and so on. Well, then prove it. Prove the integrity of character. Prove the love for the Holy Spirit. Prove you have a shepherd's heart for the body, for the flock that is hurting and confused by saying, we got it wrong. Nobody's fault. We got it wrong. We're going to the Lord to sort this out. We ask your forgiveness. We got it wrong. That's the place to start. It's The Line of Fire with your host, Dr. Michael Brown. Get into The Line of Fire now by calling 866-34-TRUTH. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. There is constant talk today in the church about pro-life issues. President Trump, strongly pro-life president. President Biden, strongly pro-abortion president. Kamala Harris, vice president, even more so. So there's constant talk about abortion, about baby killing, about pro-life. But on the grassroots level, on the person-to-person level, on the level of really understanding issues and pain, things that women go through, there's not nearly enough discussion. In fact, there's very, very little. And, and this is where we really have to put our focus. Courts and other things will only do so much. The key thing is changing hearts, changing minds. And then with that, let's see laws change as well. So... I want to bring on the line of fire now for the first time, uh, Donna Grisham. I've had the pleasure of working with Donna as she's worked as a producer in different media ministry I've worked with over the years. And I was really interested to hear that, that she'd written a book, compiled it with some others, and it's called Journeys of Choice. There is hope in the midst of an unplanned pregnancy. Brand new book just out. We wanted to get Donna on as soon as possible. So welcome to the broadcast. Thanks so much for joining us. Hello, Dr. Brown. Thank you for having me. Yeah, you know, we, we had you inadvertently scheduled on Inauguration Day, and I told my assistant, no, that's, that's not the day people are going to be focused. So let's, let's give it a little breathing time and then get you on as soon as we could. So, Donna, what, what prompted you to write this book? How does your own life story tie in with the question of abortion? Well, uh, I, had, I was raped when I was 16 years old and uh, was actually during the time during that time i went into a deep denial um my my actually i was raised by my grandparents my um somehow my mother uh was called and she came and i was taken to a doctor and you know i guess the trauma of the rape i had you know evidently just blocked everything out and uh, I ended up being 25 weeks pregnant and was taken to an abortion clinic uh, in Birmingham, Alabama. Uh, went through a, what I call a saline abortion, 
which um, I, I always let people know because, you know, we need to educate people on what happens, you know, to young girls and young women that go to abortion clinics. A saline abortion, which I'm not sure they use that anymore, but the, it burns the baby from the inside out. Mm-hmm. Um, I was taken there. Uh, I was injected with uh, the saline solution. Uh, I was basically told it was a, a blob of tissue. Uh, had to go back to where we were staying. We were staying at a hotel. Had to go back and uh, wait out. And at the time, I was 16 years old. Didn't realize what I was waiting on. I mean, they don't tell you, give you uh, too much information. They try to, they keep a lot of information from you. And so we waited out. I ended up started having a lot of pain and my mom ended up taking me to the Baptist Medical Center Hospital, which happened to be right next door to the Planned Parenthood clinic that she had, that I had got the injection from. And so I had to go and ended up giving birth to uh, a baby. I mean, not a blob of tissue, a baby. Mm. Uh, it wasn't, a, it wasn't, you know, uh, like, you, you know, you think of a blob of tissue just like, you know, but it wasn't. It was a it was a baby with hands, with feet, you know, with a eyes, nose, everything. And the reason why I know that is because during the time the the nurse was supposed to pull the curtain to, and she never pulled the curtain to. Uh, when I looked over, there was a in a jar, or like a pickle jar, uh, there was a baby, and mm. I instantly knew at that point that was that was my baby. And I commenced the screaming. I started making a lot of noise. Uh, at that time, everybody in that in that in that area started coming over, trying to quieten me down. Uh, the doctor looked at the nurse and said, "Pull that curtain to right now." And but it was too late. I had already seen enough. Um, I ended. The the nurse ends up getting in my face, and she basically said, "Shut up." You're going to be just fine. Well, Dr. Brown, I'm going to tell you, I was not just fine. I, I, after that, I totally I went into a deep depression. I had suicidal thoughts. I would have nightmares, nightmares of babies screaming, uh, and it, they would be in blood, and I would be trying to save them, and I couldn't save them. Mm. What I didn't realize was that was real. This is what these babies go through. And, and Donna, let me ask you this. So you're raped at 16, and then well into the pregnancy, you have the abortion. And again, you're just, hey, it's just blob of tissue to get rid of. Obviously, not just an unexpected pregnancy, but a deeply unwanted pregnancy because you've been raped. So none of this, I, I can't relate to any anything you're saying. I can't relate to being violated in that way. I can't relate to being pregnant. I can't relate to the abortion, all of it. But the obvious question is, okay, you're raped, you're violated. You just want to get rid of whatever this thing is inside of you and get on with life. But at the moment you saw the baby, you didn't feel that that was some intrusion and some terrible thing that was done to you. At that moment, you felt like that was your child. So explain the mother's perspective, that reality, because 
everything about it is intrusive and not what you wanted and someone else imposing something on you and you could say, get that thing away from me, that's from that man. But yet, immediately you knew that's your baby. Yeah, I, I did. I, I didn't, I mean, being as young as I was, you know, uh, and, and being raped, uh, I can't I can't say that, that I wouldn't have wanted the baby because I never had that chance. Yeah. I was never given the chance to say yes on any of it. So even but when I saw the baby, it was real to me. It was, it was, it was the child to me. It was something you don't just throw it in the trash. You don't just throw it away. Mm. So, Donna, what happens in your life after this? The nightmares, well, the spiraling I, down. Yeah. Yeah, I end up, like I said, suicidal thoughts. Uh, ended up acting upon the suicidal thoughts. I was taken to the hospital numerous times because of trying to commit suicide. Um, I ended up being very promiscuous. I mean, women either go one way or another when they're raped. They either go the, the way of they don't want nothing to do with or they go the opposite. I went the opposite, and I basically was, I didn't feel like, I felt like I was trash. And if I wasn't, I mean, I was trash, not wanted, no one was ever going to want me because that was the one thing the man told me, that nobody, that nobody would believe me for one thing, and nobody would ever want me. And so, whenever, sorry. No, please, please. So whenever I just decided my life wasn't worth anything, it wasn't. I wasn't worth living. So I, I did everything possible to die. So I didn't care about how men treated me. I began to treat men totally the same way that I was that I was violated, I began to, you know, have relationships with men, and I ended up getting pregnant a second time. I ended up, my mom taking me again, and and I was older, and let me just say this, I was older, and I could have, I could have fought this. I could have said, look, I don't want this, even, but I had blocked out everything from the rape to the first baby, everything. And, and, and I, once I blocked it out, I was trying to live, you know, trying to just survive, but yet wanting to die. Does that make sense? Yeah, abs absolutely it does. And let me yeah. just press in and ask one more question. Obviously, rape is traumatic. But are you saying that what really pushed you over was not so much the rape, but the abortion and the reality of what happened? The abortion, people think that just because a woman is raped, that abortion is the answer. That puts more trauma. That was the, that was the uh, nail to the coffin, as you can say. Extraordinary. That was the nail that, you know, just nailed it for me. Yeah, so now and, second time around, after promiscuity, pregnant, and go ahead. Taking my, my under the pretense. Uh, where I lived in Brunswick, Georgia. We were going to um, uh, go shopping. I was woke up one morning, and, and my mom said, let's go shopping. We're going to Savannah. We go to Savannah. We pull up to a place, and still not, I'm you know, not paying attention. We go to go into to a place, and I go to grab the door, and I went to open the door, 
And as I opened the door, I saw the women inside, and I it hit me. I knew what you know. And inside, I my thought was, Oh God, not again! It just everything came flooding back. And I said, I froze, and I heard a voice. What I now know, back then I didn't know that voice, but now I know that was God. He, I heard the voice say, Run. Now, number one, the devil's not going to tell you to run from an abortion clinic. Yep. You know, he's going to tell you to run to it. Yep. And so I, but I froze, and I didn't run, Dr. Brown. I, I, I was went ahead and went through with the second one. It was a suction abortion. And once the, the it's like, sound, it's like an industrial vacuum cleaner. And once that machine was turned on, I commenced to scream and saying, stop, stop, please, turn it off, turn it off. But it was too late. Mm. At least, at least I, they, they made it sound like it was too late. You know, I can't per se it was too late, but, yeah. but it was too late. And I, after going through the second one, I began to think, you know, what kind of a woman are you? What kind of a, what kind of a person could do this the second time? Which women do? They do it, you know, like it's like it's birth control, and I don't understand that personally. I do not understand that. Um, yeah. And then, uh, yeah. Let, let me just let me just jump in, uh, friends. We've got a break here. I want to come back on the other side of the break with my guest Donna Grisham, and then. Tell you about this book that she's put together with others who have amazing stories, but you're hearing the heavy stuff. The good news is this is a redemptive book. This is a book of life. This is a book of hope. This is a book of forgiveness. Life choices can be made. The name of the book, Journeys of Choice. Donna Grisham, her story in there, and other powerful stories as well. We'll be right back. It's The Line of Fire with your host, activist, author, international speaker, and theologian, Dr. Michael Brown. Your voice of moral, cultural, and spiritual revolution. Get into The Line of Fire now by calling 866-34-TRUTH. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Thanks for joining us, friends, on The Line of Fire. I'm speaking with Donna Grisham, author and compiler of the new book, Journeys of Choice. There is hope. In the midst of an unplanned pregnancy. So, Donna, uh, after your, your second abortion, plunging even deeper into darkness in your own life, how does God come in, and what's, what's the hope and message that you have for women with unplanned pregnancies in your new book? Well, the scripture that, you know, comes to me is Genesis fifty twenty. You meant evil against me, but God used it for good. And that, you know, we all know that's the story of Joseph you know, and his brothers, but I believe that it also meant for, you know, anybody that's been through the trauma that the enemy means, you know, to destroy you, to kill, steal, and destroy from you, take from you, but, you know, God wants to bring restoration to your life, and the stories in this book, each one of them has a redemptive, uh, you know, there's, there's some things that people go through, but there's a redemptive side of it. And they bring, you know, the redemption of Jesus. You know, the power of the testimony is so powerful because 
uh, Revelation, you know, says speaks about that, you know, we're redeemed by the blood of the Lamb and the word of our testimony. So mm. I believe that as people read this book and they re- read the testimonies, I mean, it's not just stories about women with abortion. There's adoption stories in there, an adoption story that's an amazing story that, you know, gives hope, you know, that, that there's an answer, you know, uh, for uh, an unplanned pregnancy. You don't have to go out and, and go to abortion you know, there's women, men and women that cannot have children that that really are, you know, praying and seeking God for uh, the answer. And, you know, that, that story, the adoption story, is actually my daughter-in-law, uh, Jackie. Mm. She uh, it's really neat because, you know, she chose life for her baby, for her little girl. Uh, you know, but God knew that little girl was for the parents. That, that, that this Amazing. Now. And Amazing. Talks about that. But so, anyway, um, let, yeah. let me just jump in and ask ask one last question. Uh, Jerry Hill's story in, in the book. So, of course, I got to know Jerry and her husband Steve very well. Worked side by side with Steve for years in the Brownsville revival. Uh, what's What's Jerry's unique story? Well, Jerry's story is her mother was raped when she was seven. And uh, Jerry was the product of rape. And what's so unique about Jerry's story is even though Jerry had to walk through some things in her life, you know, her mother chose life for her. And now look at the impact that Jerry Hill is making on the kingdom of God. Yeah. Yeah, and and Steve Hill would not have been Steve Hill without Jerry Hill, and Steve was one of the most significant evangelists in, in... In you know exactly. modern church history in America, and Jerry goes on uh, to this day with with powerful ministry. Uh, my my dear friend James Robinson, product of rape, should have been aborted, and wasn't. So this comes at things from every different angle, friend. I, I want to encourage you, if you're a woman who had an abortion and, and and the wounds are still there, the pain is there. Read this book. It it can give you hope. It can say, hey, God can turn that around for good as Donna shared some of her story. If, if you're right now in the midst of an unplanned pregnancy or have a friend, loved one who is, get them a copy of this book or get a copy of the book for yourself because it's, it's going to show you choices that can be made, choices for life. Hey, Donna, you know, I get asked all the time to endorse books or write forwards for books and like, like to do it more, but don't have as much opportunity as I'd like to. But Hearing your story for the first time, not knowing some of the background, uh, seeing some of the other stories in the book, I said, yeah, count me in. So glad I got to endorse the book and so glad to tell our listeners and viewers about it. Thanks so much, Donna, for joining us. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Dr. Brown. God bless you. All right. So Donna Grisham, Journeys of Choice is the name of the book. And let me say again, anytime. We talk about abortion in this way, and a woman like Donna opens up her heart and shares the pain and shares the reality and the trauma. It opens up wounds for some of you who've had abortions. Some of you love the Lord. You know you're forgiven, but that wound comes up. Let me remind you, when God forgives, he forgives, and there's guilt in all of us on unspeakable levels outside of his grace, and yet he forgives. He remembers our sins no more. 
nonetheless, he wants to bring redemption out of it. If there's still a weight you feel that you're carrying, say, Lord, turn this for good somehow. He can do it. He knows how to do it. You can't go back and change the past, but you can change the future based on what happened in the past. And if you feel guilt, you're, you're hit with this between the eyes, maybe you're a teenager, maybe you're an older person, and you don't know the Lord, you don't know forgiveness, this is a great time to turn to him. and Say, God, I realize just that one sin should damn me, but you sent your son to die for me. Cry out, ask for mercy, forgiveness. God will clean the slate. God will assure you that he, that, that child is with him and, and he can give you hope for the future and life and purpose and destiny. All right, let's, uh, let's go to the phones and stay on this subject. We go to Rachel in Leesburg, Virginia. Thanks for calling the line of fire. Hey, Dr. Brown, can you hear me? Yes, I can. Thank you. Wonderful. Hi, my name is Rachel, and I actually called with my husband, Jack. I don't know if you remember um, from Leesburg as well a while ago, and he had asked the question, um, what, you know, what do we do if our taxpayer dollars ever have to go towards abortion? And um, just the other day here in Virginia, um, our senators voted on a bill to use our taxpayer money for abortions, and it passed. And we're, you know, young. We're in our first year of working, and it just broke our heart that our money, you know, is going to go towards that. So how do we reconcile that? I mean, it's done. You know, it's just been really hard to, you know, come to terms with. Right. So let's look at the larger theoretical question and then the specific one. The larger theoretical question in Romans 13 Paul says the taxes should be paid to whom they're due. And, and Jesus in Matthew 19 talks about this, and, and, or in Matthew 20, and give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar. And then in Matthew 19, I believe he himself uh, pays the, the taxes. So theoretically, we are paying taxes into a system that is a worldly system, and that some of the tax money is going to be used for things that certainly we could not agree with ethically. And I'm sure Rome went to war. Rome did certain things, certain of the punishments. Look, they were still paying taxes to Rome even when Rome was persecuting Christians. So we are paying into an imperfect system. And as, as much as it seems to be a moral compromise when you think of it, when, when, the, when Paul wrote Romans 13, believers were being persecuted for their faith by Rome, and yet he said, pay taxes to Rome. So we have to accept that it, here, we're paying taxes in America. We may end up going to war, and it's a wrong war, and innocent people are killed with the help of our tax, tax dollars. And even though Planned Parenthood supposedly is not receiving money for abortion services, but for other services through our tax dollars, at least to some extent. Hey, it's going into their organization. To me, it's all the same pocket. So what we have to do, unless we feel called to move to another state because of the specific things in our state are, are heinous and therefore we're gonna relocate, and you may feel to do that out of conscience. Otherwise, what we have to do is work tirelessly to try to change hearts and to try to change laws by getting the right people elected and recognize that we're, we're in a fallen system, fallen world, that we are every day paying money into certain things that may end up using the money for corrupt purposes. So it's, it's a small comfort, but it's, it's a reality. And again, right. you might say, well, when we just don't pay taxes, 
the, the problem is you can't separate righteous taxes from unrighteous taxes. You'll end up in, in jail for failure to pay taxes or fugitives in other countries. And there might be a line that's crossed. You know, for example, in Hitler's Germany, if I know that I'm directly paying money into this war machine to slaughter Jews and others, do I draw a certain line in the sand and say, fine, then put me in prison or kill me or I try to flee to another country? Those are very valid questions to ask. But to my knowledge, even if it's not as blatant as what's happening in Virginia, which, as I said, could cause me to relocate to another state just for that one reason, the whole thing is, is a mixture. And that's the world that we live in. Again, I'm not justifying it. I'm strongly active in pro-life. It's one of the reasons I voted for Donald Trump rather than Joe Biden or Hillary Clinton was pro-life issues. But I understand even so, during this time, under these administrations, as I pointed out many times in recent weeks, under the administrations of Ronald Reagan, George H.W. Bush, George W. Bush, and Donald Trump, so 24 years of, of presidencies, we aborted about 21 million babies during that time. So this is a horrific evil in our day, supported on some level by each government that's in. And as I said, you might ultimately say it's just too overt in my state and therefore got to move, relocate to a state that's not like this. Otherwise, it's just part of the federal system, part of the, the mixture in this world. Let's do what we can to save one baby life at a time. Let's do what we can to change hearts and then work to get bad legislators out and good legislators in and then pray for the Lord's return because this world is going to be mixed and fallen until that day. Hey, I hope that helps. Friends, join me tomorrow. So much to talk about. We'll try to get to more calls, a lot to discuss, more great interviews coming in the days ahead as well. God bless. Shake.